This morning we'll be looking at God's Word as we find it in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 15. In connection with that, I'd like to read from Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 sets up the cycle that we find throughout the rest of the book of Judges, and it also helps us to um, interpret and to understand some of the events that happen throughout the book. And so we'll turn to Judges 2 and we'll read together the verses 11 to 23. Judges 2, beginning at verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. So that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out. The hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord, to walk in them as their fathers kept them, or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Let's turn ahead now to chapter 15 from the book of Judges. Our text will be the verses 9 to 20. We'll begin reading at at verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. Judges 15, beginning at verse 1. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. 
Therefore I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? They answered, Samson, son-in-law of the Timnite, because he he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Itam. And here begins our text. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, we will tie you securely, and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. So it was, when he finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name en Hakore which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So far, our text.
Brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we can all agree this morning that our text contains one of the most memorable stories in the Bible. Samson breaks his bonds, he grabs a a jawbone of all things, a jawbone that's lying on the ground. You imagine then the jeering Philistines, they come at him one by one and he takes this jawbone and he smacks one of them to the left and he smacks the next Philistine to the right. A thousand Philistines come at him and a thousand Philistines fall. They all fall into a mighty heap. And then to top it all off, the dust settles. And what does Samson do? Well, he sweetly sings with the jawbone of a donkey. He writes this memorable poem. Well, perhaps this is too imaginative, but in any case... It's been pointed out by many scholars as well that this, um, the narratives about Samson contain humor. That is, if you include the other stories of Samson too, there's this, you see this bombastic, this over-the-top kind of figure. And no matter what he does, it seems that the Philistines always manage to get the short end of the stick. You can imagine it as a sort of roadrunner and coyote situation. The Philistines are always trying to capture Samson, but before chapter 16, they always manage to fail spectacularly. But for us, this also makes Samson a bit of a tricky character, doesn't it? Because we look at him from where we stand today, and we're perhaps at a bit of a loss. Is Samson a good judge? Is Samson a bad judge? We see that he saves God's people with these miraculous feats of God-given strength. But on the other hand, we know his faults. We know that he is proud. We know that he lusts after women. But then again, the Lord, for whatever purpose he has, uses him to defeat the Philistines. And that there is really the key of it all, is that the Lord uses this man. He chooses Samson to be his servant. And it's the more that you spend time in these stories of Samson that you see, really, it is the Lord. It is the Lord's role that comes to the fore. You see that it is God performing the mighty feats. Just like Samson says in verse 18, says, you, Lord, you, Lord, have granted this great deliverance. It's obviously the Lord who defeats the Philistines. And we could say that he really only uses a judge, he only uses a jawbone to get the job done. This is what we'll see from Judges 15 this morning. Our theme is the Lord defeats the Philistines with a judge and a jawbone. First, we'll see the judge abandoned by his own people. And we'll see that the judge is victorious by the Spirit. And finally, that the judge is sustained by his God. So first we'll see that the judge is abandoned by his own people. Our text begins with the Philistines in verse 9. Now the Philistines went up, they encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. Well, what are they doing here? Why are they in Judah? And why are they encamping and deploying themselves against this Judean town? 
It's unclear from the text whether they've attacked the village or if they've merely surrounded it. But in any case, the men of the town ask that question. They say, well, why have you come up against us? Why are you attacking us? The Philistines answer, we've come to bind up Samson. We've come to arrest him. We've come to take him, to do to him what he did to us. So that makes us ask, well, what was it that Samson had done to these Philistines? And if we look back through the chapters 14 and 15, we see this remarkable chain of events taking place. All the way back to Samson's marriage with the daughter of the Timnite, where at that wedding feast, Samson gave this riddle. He said, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. He challenges the Philistines to answer. And the only way they do is by cheating. They ask Samson's wife. They say, can you get the answer for us? And of course, when Samson finds out about this, he's very angry. His response is to kill 30 Philistine townsmen and give their garments to these men. And from there, the chain continues. Samson's father-in-law gives his wife to a companion. Samson catches foxes, uses them to burn the Philistines' crops. The Philistines respond then by killing Samson's wife. They kill Samson's father-in-law too. Samson takes revenge by striking them hip and thigh, the text says. Something like thoroughly, a Hebrew sort of idiom. Finally, Samson is done with all this. He goes, he stays in the rock of Etam. So this is where our text picks up. It's not a surprise that the Philistines want their piece of Samson. But we might also want to ask the question, what are the Philistines doing here? We might want to ask that to the men of Judah too. Because one of the biggest failures that we find in the book of Judges is that the Israelites do not drive out the pagan occupants of the promised land, including the Philistines. Not only do they not drive out these people, but they also abandon God altogether. And so God, in His judgment, sells them into the hand of their enemies. We read about that in chapter 2. Chapter 2, we see in verse 20 and following, Judges 2, the verses 20 to 23, we see this, and this is, this is key for understanding our passage here. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel for not obeying him and for worshiping the idols, the Baals. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them, here's the key, through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations. So the presence of these Philistines we see in our passage should alert us to the fact that these are, people are here to test the Israelites. Are the Israelites going to walk in the way of the Lord? How about these men of Judah? And it's, it's so gracious of the Lord not simply to abandon his people, 
God does not say, okay, you don't want to have anything to do with me, fine, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you on your own. No. Even in, these, in, the, in the role of these enemies, even in the role of these pagan people, God is providing grace by giving a test, by giving the people an opportunity, an opportunity to return. Not only does God test them by the presence of these foreign, by these pagan nations, but even more graciously, He gives them a template, you could say, a template of salvation. Chapter 2, verse 18, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies. And so when we put this all together, the Philistines are here to test Israel, and the question is, are the Israelites, are the men of Judah, going to turn to the judge? Are they going to look to this God-appointed judge, this God-appointed means of salvation for deliverance? Well, what is it that the men of Judah do? They send an army of 3,000 men to support Samson? No. They send an army of 3,000 men to capture Samson. Their conclusion is that Samson must be the problem. And they tell Samson, they say, Samson, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you have done to us? Your actions, Samson, they're not, they're not helping us. They're harming us. What are you doing? Why are you disturbing the peace? Why are you making things so difficult? Why are you making things worse for us? Samson replies, same as the Philistines do, as they did to me, so have I done to them. But the men of Judah, they insist, they say, we've come to arrest you. We want to give you into the hands of the Philistines. They assure Samson that they won't kill him. That's a wonderful comfort. They send 3,000 men to capture, but they won't kill him. Good. They'll let the Philistines do that instead. How sad this is. The men of Judah, they should have been rallying around Samson. Here was the Lord's given judge. We know from the text that he had performed mighty feats of strength before. He had been successful in battle. Think too, Samson had been selected from birth. And as he grew up, he was publicly, he was visibly displayed as a Nazarite. He had long hair, he did, could not drink wine, for example. And the whole purpose of this Nazarite vow was to show clearly to everyone else that this person was separated for the Lord. This person so visibly dedicated and chosen by God the people would rather abandon. They would rather be rid of him because they think he makes life more difficult. He causes, he ruffles feathers. They think God's chosen servant is the problem, not the solution. But of course, it's not only Samson that these people have abandoned, is it? Because that Nazarite vow also functioned for the people as a reminder a reminder of their own status, that the entire nation of Israel, and us too, 
God's people are also separated, set apart for the Lord. Israel was God's treasured possession. They were God's holy nation. But they had abandoned this special status. They had also abandoned any notion of an antithesis. Remember what God promised back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, that there's going to be this enmity, this hostility, you could say, hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But they had abandoned this. And they had abandoned this mandate that they had from God to drive out the enemy. Instead, we find that they're just content. They're happy to let the Philistines be the rulers so long as things stay relatively peaceful. They accept it as a matter of fact. Samson, don't you know? Don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? And is this not exactly our own human nature? Do we, as God's people, do we truly want there to be enmity? Do we want there to be hostility between us, the seed of the woman, and the world, that seed of the serpent? Wouldn't we much rather keep the peace? Perhaps you think that pushing God or the church out of your life even will make things easier. Perhaps things would be more peaceful. Perhaps they would be less confrontational. Perhaps you wouldn't have to think so hard about your actions. Your conscience, oh, it would no longer bother you. Maybe you're tempted to think like this. Don't you know that everybody just does this? Don't you know that everyone plays this sort of dog-eat-dog business game? Or don't you know that drinking and getting drunk is just what people do? If I can't live my life like this, do you know what you'll do to me? Samson, don't you know what you've done to us? Personal harm. Don't you know what that would do to me? Maybe that doesn't describe you, but what about this even? Do you find it easier to skip devotion and prayer? I'll just pass for today. Maybe you think it's better to live a stress-free life. And you think that being a Christian, being involved is too stressful, too confrontational. Maybe you've even done a rather good job of pushing God away. You've managed to confine him into this little box that we call Sunday. The rest of the week you live for yourself. See, this is, this is no surprise. This is who we are by nature. And we see this scene reappear time and time again throughout the scriptures. It happened even to our Lord Jesus on more than one occasion by people who stared the Savior straight in the face. The high priest Caiaphas is an example from John chapter 11. He thought that Jesus was a disturber of the peace. The Pharisees had been saying, if we let Jesus go on like this, he's going to cause problems. Everybody's going to believe in him. What's going to happen, they said? The Romans are going to come. They're going to take away our place. They're going to take away our nation. Don't you know that the Romans are rulers over us, Jesus? Caiaphas replied, he said, it's better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
not only Caiaphas, but the Apostle Peter too. He abandoned Jesus three times at the point of confrontation. Samson, don't you know that it's better to just leave things be? Samson, don't you know that it's better for God's servant to die to keep the peace? So this is our human nature. And so the question for us all, brothers and sisters, is this. Do we abandon God when the lifestyle of this world seems so attractive? Do we disown the Savior whom God has sent for us? Do we do it just like the Apostle Peter? Don't we, do we often say by our words or actions, Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't know him. I've never heard of him. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we need to repent of. We need to turn again to the Lord. We need to seek his forgiveness for abandoning him. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins to God and we do so because he is faithful. He's faithful to his promise to forgive. And it's also this, in this deplorable situation that we find in Judges 15. It's also in this situation that the faithfulness of God comes to the fore. We see God's faithfulness acting. God's faithfulness so beautifully displayed. You see, he grants this victory through his judge by the Spirit, although his people don't deserve it. And although his people, it doesn't seem, even want it. When God's people don't act, he acts. And it's so interesting to see in this, in this story that it's explicitly the Lord who is acting here. Look at this wonderful verse from chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 4. This is when Samson is considering marrying this woman from Timnah. And his father and mother are wondering about what's happening. They're not sure. In any case, this is what the text says. Judges 14, 4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. That he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. The Lord is looking for an opportunity, an opportunity to show His salvation. It's an opportunity to make good on His own promises that He's made. He made a promise in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would dwell in the land. And so Israel, although they're happy to live without enmity, God puts that enmity where he promised to put it. And although Israel is happy to live in the midst of all these other nations, God had promised that it would be their own. And so God shows himself to be faithful and he acts. He intervenes. What does the Lord do? see, Samson has been bound with new ropes. He's taken by the men of Judah to the Philistines. When the Philistines see Samson, they come shouting against him. Don't know if that's a shout of triumph, perhaps, or a shout of battle, could be. In any case, it's at this very moment that God begins his work. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, comes mightily upon Samson. 
And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. And his bonds broke loose from his hands. Literally, the text reads, the bonds melted. The bonds melted off his hands. This is an act, direct act of the divine God, isn't it? God at work. What does Samson do? He grabs an unlikely weapon. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand men. All in the strength of the Spirit of the Lord. It's a remarkable victory from God. But all we have to do is look at the poem in verse 16 to see that Samson doesn't see it that way. What does he say? Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. It's a brilliant piece of poetry, isn't it? We have typical Hebrew poetry, two lines that are parallel to each other. And in the Hebrew, too, there's this interesting word play that goes on. The Hebrew word for donkey and the Hebrew word for heap are spelled exactly the same. And so there's like a double meaning to this strange poem. If you look at different translations, you can see that they translate it in a different way. The New Living Translation, for example, says, with the jawbone of a donkey, I piled them in heaps. The NIV is different. It says, with a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. Regardless of this wordplay, as fascinating as it is, we see that this poem does not contain any praise. It does not contain any thanksgiving to God. Samson glorifies himself. The jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And he even names the place after his own exploits. Verse 17, he calls that place Ramath Lehi. That means the hill of the jawbone. There's no mention of God's deliverance. And it's so ironic when we know that the Lord accomplished the victory. It's only because of the Spirit of the Lord that rushes upon him that he's successful in any way. It happened to other judges, the same thing, the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon them for these just unimaginable military victories. We think of what God said to Zechariah. He said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. The fact of the matter is that God's people have success through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Now for a moment, I want you to imagine that you are an ancient Israelite. Suppose you are living in Jerusalem and it's the time of the reign of King David or it's the time of the reign of King Solomon. It's the greatest point in the history of the kingdom of Israel. You can look up, for example, you can see the palace. You can look up and see the temple shining there on Mount Zion. And suppose that as an Israelite, you read this passage of Judges. As you come to the very end of the chapter, you look at verse 20, and you read this. You say, And he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. You notice that Samson was not able to break the rule of the judges. 
Other judges, we read that they were victorious and that the land had rest. But with Samson, we do not. You see that Samson was not actually able to break that cycle, was he? God's people falling into unfaithfulness. The land being given into the hand of their enemies. Despite Samson's victory, it continues. Wouldn't you as an Israelite then in the time of King David realize that what the people need here, isn't it? Is they need a king. And not just any old sort of a king. But a king who would rule in the way that God intended him to rule. Deuteronomy 17 describes such a king. A king who follows God's law. A king who is humble. A king whose heart is not lifted up above his brothers. You see, our passage in Judges 15, it yearns for somebody like this to come onto the scene. Somebody who can provide a victory that lasts. Something longer than a moment. We think of a king like King David. David, like Samson, was chosen by God directly, anointed and filled with the Spirit of the Lord. But unlike Samson, David depended upon God for victory, didn't he? We also can read then in 2 Samuel 5, 2 Samuel 8, that David defeated the Philistines, brought peace to Israel. It's through that King David that God fulfills that great promise to Abraham that his people would dwell in this wonderful promised land. So this passage yearns for a king. But if we zoom out even further still, we notice that even David and Solomon, they provided a victory that was longer than Samson's. But it was still temporary too. David too was a sinner. He too was proud at times. Boasted in the strength of his own army, for example. And even under their descendants, under the kings of Israel, under the kings of Judah, we see a cycle that is remarkably familiar. When the king serves the Lord, the people are blessed. But when the king serves idols, the nation suffers. Eventually, the cycle continues and God's people are finally delivered into the hands of the Assyrians and into the hands of the Babylonians. Because even more, brothers and sisters... It's Jesus Christ that this passage in Judges longs for. A king chosen by God, anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, who will grant true, who will grant lasting deliverance. One who will truly crush the head of the serpent. Our passage, it longs for Christ, who is a better Savior, who is a better deliverer than Samson. He's the only truly righteous man ever to have lived on this earth. Unlike Samson, not proud, humble. Samson motivated by revenge. Jesus simply submits himself to the will of his Father. And he laid down his life as a sacrifice needed for your sins, for mine. You see, Jesus Christ is a better way, a better template of salvation than a judge. He's better than any judge. He's better than any king. And because he's a better savior, brothers and sisters, he wins a better victory. 
Samson could kill a thousand Philistines. Sing a song about it. We must think that is a wow, that is amazing. But Samson had no power whatsoever to change the hearts of God's people. Samson had no power even to change his own heart. But Christ's victory is over more than physical enemies. It's also over spiritual enemies. He frees us from the bonds of sin. So brothers and sisters, look to that greater Savior. Look to God only for the salvation that He has worked in Christ. Do not reject Christ. Do not push Him away like the men of Judah reject Samson. Look at the cross, beloved. Look at the empty tomb. The hill of the skull, Golgotha, is such a better place than the hill of the jawbone. And when we see this, it gives us a new perspective. It turns the words of the men of Judah, for instance, completely upside down. Because we know that God reigns, because we know that Christ has conquered sin, we're able to say something completely different. We can say, do you not know that the Lord is ruler over us? Do you not know that the Lord is a ruler over me? Do you not know that he sits on the throne of my heart? And because of Christ, I view everything differently. This business world, it's not merely this dog-eat-dog sort of competition. Because of Christ, drinking, getting drunk, it's not what people do. Because of Christ, when we're afflicted and tempted all around, we're still at the same time reminded, moved to say, what then is this that he has done for us? What then is this that he's done for me? He has accomplished such a great salvation that he's, he's brought us from slavery to sin into the promised land. That brings us to the final part of our text where we see that Samson, the judge, is sustained by God. from slavery into the promised land, you know, the greatest picture of our salvation in the Old Testament is probably the Exodus, isn't it? God brings His people out of Egypt, does so with these great plagues, parts the Red Sea. It's so obviously not a human achievement, but it's God's work of salvation. No longer were the Egyptians rulers over us, you could say. No longer did they rule over God's people. But what happens afterward? the people begin to grumble against Moses, don't they? They begin to grumble against the Lord. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, they say, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Perhaps you wonder even for yourself, how long will it be before I myself forget God and grumble again? How long until I become weary and thirst? Yes, I know God's salvation for me, yes but I also know myself to be a sinner. How long until I go back to doing things the way they were before? How long until I'm happy, as it were, to let the Philistines rule? How long? Well, brothers and sisters, the answer to our concern is in that the Lord provides. 
We find in our text that Samson, after this wonderful victory, has become very thirsty. Thirsty, it's, the text says, to the point of death, even. So finally, finally at this point, Samson is moved to cry out to God. Finally, he goes from boasting in his own strength to being humbled on his knees by his weakness. Samson, too, this great strong man, he's compelled to realize that he's only sustained by the grace of God. He cries out. He says, you've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. And God's response is so gracious, isn't it? Although Samson, we might argue, doesn't deserve it, God graciously sustains him. He provides water. He splits open a hollow place, it says. This rock, he transforms it into a permanent spring. Samson drinks. His spirit returns. He's revived. He's refreshed. So Samson renames the place En-Hakore, means the spring of him who called. And of course, this whole scene is meant, and it's depicted in such a way to remind us of the Israelites in the wilderness, to remind us of how God split open the rock there and provided sustenance for them when they needed it. He refreshed. He revived his people. We also read that the spring is at Lehi to this day. So if we return to our illustration from before, imagine you're an Israelite in the time of David or in the time of Solomon. You could read the story, if you were. You could load up the donkey. You could travel to Lehi. You could see the spring. That same spring. Still providing water. You see, God's provision here is not only for Samson as an individual, but it's also for generations after him. It's a continual, it's such a generous, you could say, source of provision. More than Samson asked for. Being weary and thirsty, you could arrive there, you could see the hollow place for yourself. You could draw water for your thirst. It's a beautiful picture here of how God always, how God continually provides for his people. God has achieved a great salvation, yes, but he does not now neglect us. He does not now say you're on your own. But he provides daily sustenance. He promises in his word, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. But again, we need to zoom out further, don't we? Beyond Samson, beyond an Israelite, because there was another man who said, I thirst. That man, Jesus, stood in our place under God's wrath that we deserved. The wrath that we deserve for abandoning him. This man who cried, I thirst, was God's beloved son. He was a true servant. He was a faithful servant. He never sinned. And yet God did not split open the rock for him. Jesus was not refreshed. 
on the cross, he merely received some sour wine on a sponge. Just enough. Just enough to wet his lips so that he could say, it is finished. And unlike Samson, this man, Jesus, gave up his spirit. Brothers and sisters, God hears when we call. For Samson, that question, shall I now die of thirst, was answered by a no. But for us Christians now, with the same question, the answer is a resounding no that echoes off the hill of Golgotha. It echoes off the cross. Christ has borne all the displeasure of God against us. And so now God freely gives. He freely grants the nourishment that we need. Jesus promises, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus, he sends the Spirit into our hearts to preserve us, to keep us faithful to the end, to provide the daily strength that we need to keep walking, to keep moving forward with him. Some months ago, I went on a trip to Kenya in Africa, traveled there with Reverend DeGelder. We spent a few weeks training some students there. And these students had a very small number of well-known English hymns that they would sing regularly. And many of these students, you have to know, they come from the country of South Sudan, which is very much a war-torn, conflict-torn part of the world. And so because of this, they're very fond of hymns that speak with military language, that speak with war sorts of analogies. These hymns, they really speak to them, and they sing them with so much gusto. And one of their favorites was, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And, but brothers and sisters, it's not only a place like South Sudan that is involved in enmity, hostility, and warfare. It's everywhere. It's this entire world. And it's involving each one of us, too. And it's a conflict in which we need to stand up. That is, we need to stand up for Jesus, not abandon him, not push him away. The third verse of that hymn says, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. Dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. The hymn writer says it so well. Stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. Yes, unlike the men of Judah, brothers and sisters, we must stand up for our Savior. But we do not do it in our own fleshly strength. We stand in His strength. Stand in His strength alone. You see, that daily strength needed to remember God, to commit ourselves to Him, comes from Christ. The daily strength of devotions or prayer comes from Christ. The strength to live a life that is at 
confrontation with the world. That strength comes from Christ. The strength to have zeal that we would pursue God in every area of our life, that comes from Christ. Brothers and sisters, cry out to God in prayer for this strength. Cry out to Jesus who is this source of infinite strength. He promises to give it when we call. And it's the strength that enables us to do what is our Christian duty, isn't it? The hymn says, where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. That is, wherever duty calls us, let us not be lacking. That is, not, let us not be wanting. Like the men of Judah were found wanting when put to the test. But rather, let's stand in Jesus' strength and meet our duty, and meet the enmity where we must. Brothers and sisters, as we close, I would encourage you to consider Samson. He's the judge of Israel, and for whatever his faults were, he too was a deliverer, he was a savior for Israel. But we as Christians, here in the 21st century, we have a greater savior than than Samson. That's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Because of that, we have a better salvation too. And so embrace the Savior through faith. Cling to Jesus Christ as the one man, the only man who can save. The great Redeemer. Unlike Samson, he has no weaknesses. He has no hidden faults. And despite Jesus' mighty power, he is so gentle toward those who draw near to him. And those who draw near most certainly do find the sustenance that they need for their souls. Amen.